Welcome to Peer Spectrum, where we bypass the ordinary and familiar to explore the unsettled edges of medicine, where we tackle real problems in depth with those specialized and dedicated to solving them, where we mine the knowledge and experience spectrum of your peers through long-form conversations, not sound bites. Take us with you anytime, anywhere, and get ready to make your downtime count. Get ready for Peer Spectrum with Keith Mankin and Colin Miller. All right, welcome back. So when it comes to funding scientific research, especially medical research, how do you feel about things as they are now? Is the grant system an efficient and fair way to get billions of taxpayer dollars where they're needed most? Are funds targeted towards diseases proportional to their occurrence in patient populations? Is the influence of disease-specific nonprofit groups helpful or hurtful? And of course, are the interests and activities of biomedical companies actually aligned with the needs of you and your patients? Well, if you think there's room for some serious improvement here, Today's episode is just for you. Cindy Wu was a young undergraduate student at the University of Washington working on a way to modify an enzyme treatment for anthrax, actually using a video game, which, by the way, is a heck of a lot more than I was doing in college. Anyway, she approached her professor, eager to find funding for her idea. Cindy, he said, the system doesn't fund people like you. It only funds tenured professors. Although he ended up actually giving her a little bit of money from one of his own research grants, Cindy had taken her first glance at the huge world of underfunded and undiscovered science. Cindy wanted to do something about this, but she needed some help. She talked about the problem with her friend, Denny Lon, a fellow student who also had experience in software development. The amazing solution they came up with was pitched to Silicon Valley investors in 2013 at Y Combinator. That three-minute pitch brought in $1.2 million in initial startup funds. And Experiment.com, a unique crowdfunding platform for scientific research, was born. Like early-stage investing, you can think of this space as early-stage research. Bill Gates has described Experiment.com as a solution that helps close the gap for potential and promising, but unfunded projects. Most research in this gap can actually be funded for as little as five to $10,000. We know what you're thinking. Five to ten grand? Maybe for a university science fair, but certainly not for legitimate medical research. As we're going to see, though, technologies such as CRISPR gene editing, 3D printing, and artificial intelligence are already lowering the costs and barriers to researchers in ways that would have been unimaginable just a few years ago. This will only continue, and companies like Experiment.com are leading the way into this undiscovered country. With that said, we're happy to bring you the founders of Experiment, Cindy Wu and Denny Lon. Cindy and Denny, welcome. Thank you so much for taking some time out with us today. Just take us back to the origins here. How did this idea start, but also what made it necessary? Well, thanks for having us on the show. The Absolutely. idea all started when uh, Denny and I were undergrads at the University of Washington. And we had just published a paper where we designed a therapeutic for anthrax in the Journal of Biological Chemistry. And we wanted to use that um, drug on staff epidermidis infections because staph and anthrax have the same way um, of causing infection. And we needed maybe $5,000 to use a flow cytometer and buy a few reagents. And when I went to my professor and said, where could we find these funds? He basically looked at us and said, look, you're undergraduate students that need such a small amount of money. There aren't really grants out there for people like you. And that, you know, that's really telling there because you're either in it or you're out of it, kind of like being a college football coach. Once you're in, you can get fired and rehired again, but you're in that world. Once you're a tenured professor, getting grant money is much easier. But you, to get to become a tenured professor, you got to get grant money. So after you that experience, Cindy, well, take us when, when the two of you met and take us to the formative first steps of this idea. And then obviously YC helped out tremendously as, as far as getting... Uh, funding, but also getting uh, attention for your idea. Denny, you want to tell them how we met? <laughs> um, so Cindy and I met uh, at a college party the first time playing video games together. Um, and so we, we had actually, like, done, we were in the same, like, intro biochemistry lecture um, and then ended up working together in a few different research settings. Um, and so Cindy and I had worked together mainly as scientists and had been friends before we had ever come up with this idea. And so by the time that we had gone through this research experience of coming up with new ideas and running into this kind of well-known secret in academia of research funding, 
being kind of you know hard to get new projects off the ground. Uh, I had also been working on at the time um, in this area of social microfinance, which was this kind of new online. It was a mix of um, like online platforms that were popping up, but then also like traditional banking organizations going to different places around the world, um, basically pooling resources to help people in say like Bangladesh. So the idea behind social microfinance is say you're a goat farmer and you need $100 with a small loan, you can uh, use that capital to kind of make small investments and then over time pay back those loans. So back in 2007, this had been a really big thing with platforms like kiva.org. And so at, at the time we were students and we were looking at stuff like that, I was like, why can't we do that and apply some of those social lessons to science and science research? So that's kind of, that was all happening when Cindy and I were hanging out and then doing research. And then uh, that was probably our senior year of college. Yeah, I've actually been using Kiva for years. I love it. I mean, it's it's one thing to make a charitable donation and never actually see the results or know whatever came of that. But on Kiva, as you were saying, you, you can actually see who is starting up a plumbing business in Shilai, for example, and then follow their story. And this, I guess it's the same idea here with experiments. So how did you get from having this idea and seeing the need, Cindy, because you could see what was happening. You, you're not, certainly not the only person who's getting denied funding, but how do you get from that point to finding investors and getting the idea out there? Before we... Uh, built a site. We went around University of Washington and just spoke to any professor, grad student, postdoc that would talk to us. And we would ask them two questions. We would ask them, um, if we made a site where anyone anywhere could give directly to your research, would you use it? And every single person said, yes, I would use it. And then the second question would be, um, if you did use it, what would you propose? And that's when things got really interesting because even tenured professors would say, look, Cindy and Denny, this is an idea that I would never submit to NIH or NSF because I know they wouldn't fund it. Um, but I've been thinking about this for the past 10 years and it's kind of just been on my shelf collecting dust. And it's something that I'm really, really excited about. Um, I only need a little bit of money to get it started. Um, and there really isn't any other way for me to get a project like this funded. So then, yeah, I guess talking to all of these scientists made it clear to us that there was a clear problem here and we had this opportunity to try and make some make like a, a prototype that we could test with. So after having all those conversations, we, we got enough of our friends and colleagues and professors and grad students um, committed to, to launching projects. And I think we we worked for like two months with a few other friends that we recruited, like in, in an actual website that we put up and we launched with nine projects out of those conversations that we had. And we ended up funding, I think, like six out of those first nine projects. Wow. And so it was after that that we realized, okay, maybe there's actually something here, or we, or we could try to grow this and, and see if more scientists would be interested, but also if we could build this kind of community of people who wanted to be closer to science, like directly connected to these, these scientists. And that funding just happened sort of organically. You floated it out, and there was a population online who said, yeah, I'm really interested in this, or yeah, that makes sense, I want to do that. That, that worked? Yeah, so it was That's all great. kind of a big experiment. We we yeah, didn't really have course. any ideas of, like, we I think we had talked to one like tech journalist in the area. It was like a very small Seattle area tech blog that mm -hmm. covered mainly like Microsoft or Amazon news. But then we had convinced them to like do a small mention. Um, but beyond that, like we had a small mailing list of people of just like friends that we we convinced them or tricked them into giving us uh, their email address. <laughs> And then it was just kind of like, let's see what the scientists do. So let's see how they share it. And like, the only thing we could try to do is to tell the researchers, don't treat it like a grant, but maybe, you know, talk about your science. And then we kind of learn more about how scientists naturally want to do that. Right. Well, one of the things that struck us was the, um, the lab notes, the fact that um, not only is everything transparent, but it really forces the, the researcher to, to really open up. It brings science to people who wouldn't ordinarily hear it. Is that, was that an intentional thing? Was that what you intended all along? Or was that something that just sort of developed as, as you, you worked on the project? So for, for us, I think that was one of the big uh, like founding principles or one of the big hypotheses we wanted to test because that was partially why um, I think we felt so convinced that this idea should work. 
uh, is because Cindy and I, when we're working as scientists, like at a lab bench and you're doing these experiments, like I am thinking in my head, what I am doing is so cool. If I could just tell someone else about it, I could probably blow their minds. But right. as scientists kind of being locked in the way you do science, you don't have a lot of that exposure or the chance to tell other people about the really, really cool things that you're doing. And so the lab notes feature was just kind of like a way for us to not just to encourage scientists to share science, but to share it like how they would do the science. So not necessarily in a traditional, like when, when people think about science communication, it used to be right. this kind of like, how do I dumb it down? How do I serve it in this way that is most palatable or accessible? Um, but what we felt like as doing, you know, as a scientist, um, like I'm a scientist and, you know, trained in biochemistry and synthetic biology, but I'm also really passionate about um, computer science, AI research, Mm -hmm. And I may, I may not be an expert in it, but if someone, you know, could have an, a, a real conversation about the nuts and bolts, I might not understand everything, but that is still a very valuable conversation. And you don't really see that a lot outside of like the internet. I mean, right. it used to be, yeah. you would have to like go to the library to look up kind of obscure journals, or you would get kind of the processed sugary version of popular science. And so yeah. we wanted to kind of do something in the middle, or at least also give the scientists the chance to have that voice themselves. Sure. Yeah, well, I'm sure you're aware the old fuddy-duddy way to do it is you would never share your data, you'd never share your, your method or any of your design until it was an abstract, and then you'd go and you'd discuss it, and then maybe you'd make changes, and then you'd hope it get, to get it published. But the idea that this is something that from the very inception of the project, almost from the, the time when you're designing the project, you're communicating about it is, is really exciting. Um, have you found that the researchers are using this as a platform to, to uh, learn more from other researchers on the, on the, um, uh, on the platform? Or um, in other words, are they, are they actually just showing off or are they trying to learn as they go with their, with their demonstrations? A lot of the funders on the platform are scientists or former scientists. Okay. And we find that there are even graduate students that are funding other researchers on the site. One graduate student said it was like it was similar to going to a conference where she could only go to a conference once a year or twice a year, but by giving to different campaigns on experiment and reading the lab notes, she felt like she could be in a conference the entire year. Right. So we all know most graduate students don't have a ton of money, right? Mm -hmm. And for them to even be able to find a hundred bucks or so to put up to, you know, to sponsor one of their colleagues, that's amazing. It, and I'm going to go back to a quote here. This is on your front page of your website. This is from Bill Gates. And he describes experiment as a solution that helps close the gap for potential and promising, but unfunded projects. So there is a gap here that, you know, there's some projects that require sometimes millions of dollars, especially for a multi-centered double blind placebo trial versus something where you're just trying to find out, I saw one, you know, how ER physicians treat uh, psychiatric patients when they come in. And that may be more survey methods or actually in-person, um, you know, observations. Tell us more about this gap that Bill Gates is describing here. I mean, how much research can actually, and legitimate research that's important, be done for $5,000, for example? What's the average uh, amount raised on the site and then obviously we want to get into a little more about grant money and how much that actually goes into overhead. But let's just start with this gap that's described here. Um, yeah, so I guess, I mean, I could talk about this like funding, research funding gap and kind of the, the artifacts of research funding today. I could talk about this forever. But um, I think the, the thing that Cindy mentioned was how you would have scientists who would have a lot of these ideas, but... Um, they would kind of sit on bookshelves or sit in the back of their minds until it was kind of like the right opportunity. And I think almost any scientist in any field does that kind of behavior where they're always collecting, you know, fun, cool ideas. The challenge is, is how do you fit these ideas into how funding and then also how you reward funding today? So publication um, and, and things like tenure and, you know, supporting a lab and being scientifically productive. Um, those things don't always promote chasing like the really unique or potentially valuable ideas. And so I think how scientists most today, they most often think about it is like, how much is it worth this risk of me trying to apply for grants for this versus what I can, you know, almost guarantee getting a publication or future grants or 
um, something that's safer. And so I think for, for the, the way we saw it is we wanted to at least have a way where scientists could feel, uh, I guess, they could have their intellectual freedom again or have that scientific freedom back as opposed to having their work be dictated by the, the grant cycle of like, what could I fit into six months? So what's the average, what's the minimum that you've seen and what's the maximum? And then what's the average amount that's raised? So the smallest project can be anything from like $100, $200. I think that's been funded in the past. And the largest project we funded was a little over $2 million and that had several thousand backers. Wow. Um, but the typical project we saw in experiment is around four to $5,000. Um, and it's usually like one independent graduate student or like a few student researchers. And that's kind of the, the ultimately the long tail of the projects that uh, we feel like experiment is working for right now. Um, but most of the projects are, are in that, that size. Okay. Do you have an idea of the uh, yield? How many of the projects are getting funded as opposed to failing to get funded? So the current success funding success rate on experiment mm -hmm. is around 42%. 44. Okay. Oh, it's gone up. 44%. Um, it's, it's since we've launched, it's hovered around that 44%. Okay. And do you have a, a benchmark? Do you know how that compares with other crowdsourcing things? I mean, obviously it's a completely different field and so you're, you're getting a different group, but what's, what's considered good in, um, in the idea of social microfinance in terms of the yield? Yeah. So we, I think it depends on what the application, like what the platform is. So something like social microfinance or a website like Kiva, you'll see a lot of really small projects, but then right. Kiva is also facilitating making sure those projects get funded. Um, we've also looked at other websites like Kickstarter, obviously, so that's more for creative projects. Right. Um, and then kind of the yield and success rate is pretty similar. So I think it's more yeah. a dynamic of how much money at any given moment the internet has towards supporting small independent projects. Right. That's good. Your success rate's around 35%. Yeah. Oh, good. So you're ahead of the game. Excellent. A little bit. <laughs> yeah. It gives me faith that people are willing to give to science this way, which, which, is, which is good. And I, I think that there are probably a lot of people who, who would like to, to take $100 or a couple hundred dollars and, and put it into a project and then just sort of adopt the project and then keep an eye on it. Um, so I think that you're tapping into a really good field. Do you, um, uh, and I didn't, I apologize, I didn't follow through sort of the donation route or anything. Do you keep demographics on the, the people who donate? Do you know if they're, how, what percentage are in medicine, what percentage are in science, what percent are attached to universities, et cetera, et cetera? Um, we don't know the specifics behind okay. those, those stats that you're asking for, like how many are university, mm -hmm. how many are in medical research. Um, but we do know that for every campaign on experiment, um, some of the funds will come from that researcher's friends and family network. So crowdfunding is something that works if you're willing to start out with reaching out to your friends and family. And then after right. you do that, then the crowd starts to kick in. That makes sense. Yeah. That yeah. they see that it's starting to get funded. And so people outside say, oh, okay, if, you know, I don't want to give all of it, but I can give some of it and it has a chance. Everybody likes to fund a winner. Nobody wants to fund something that, that is not going to get funded. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's really good. Well, let's talk about that for a second. I mean, winners and losers here. I mean, if 44% right now are, are reaching their, their funding goals, um, but 56% are not, obviously the there is, is, is evaluating each one of these and, and some they believe in, some they don't, or they're maybe more excited about other ones than, than, than not. But, how do you actually screen for the researchers who are coming in? Because it's one thing to have the community doing this, but Keith and I here want to pursue our passion to find the Loch Ness Monster, for example. I'm guessing by what I've seen on your website, that's not something that you'd want on your website. So one, how do you vet the researchers? How do you know they're legitimate? And two, how, then, um, how much of, of that is your decision, Cindy and Danny, and your team, then how much of that is the community's decision? So when we vet a project, we vet it for three things. One, we verify the identity of the researcher. Two, we make sure that it's a research project. So there's a, there's a specific research question being asked. And then three, that the budget that they've outlined and the goals of the project 
um, are in line. So the amount of money that they're asking for is enough to um, complete what they say they're going to set out to complete. If you have human subjects or vertebrates in your study, then you need an IRB. Um, right now, the only way to get that is if you're at a university. Um, we hope that in the future, um, either experiment or some organization could develop a universal IRB that anyone could use. And then beyond that, every project is also endorsed by one other scientist. So if you're a scientist that submits a proposal, you have to get one other colleague to endorse your project before it goes live. So this is not for the amateur um, you know, scientists working out of their garage, right? I mean, you do have to at least have some legitimate connection to a university or well, you a research be. institution. Could you? Okay. And- Anyone can use experiment as long as you're proposing a valid uh, research experiment. Okay. Yeah. But you'd, you'd have to figure out, I guess, how to get the endorsement and how to, to make sure that your idea is valid. But yeah. Interesting. So we've never yeah. actually rejected outright projects for, say, like scientific reasons. I would say we've only had to make that exception once. Um, for, for the Bigfoot project. Oh. <laughs> oh, you did have a Bigfoot project. Yeah, okay. so it turns out there's a really Excellent. active um, Bigfoot community online. Uh-huh. Like um, like tens of thousands of, of people who've it's all have seen Bigfoot in their backyards. Um, of and even though it is following, say, like the scientific method and has a hypothesis, that was probably the one time where we had to at least say, like, maybe not right now. That project had different um, problems where the, the guy submitting the project wouldn't tell us who he was, but he would send yeah, us photos too. of, like, footprints. Oh, okay. <laughs> maybe it was Big, Bigfoot himself. He was saying, come and find me. Um, but, yeah, I, I guess to uh, say again, like, we don't – we try not to do any sort of qualitative review. We Like, we don't want to be the gatekeepers of what necessarily counts as good science. Um because that also is one of the problems that a lot of scientists face when they're writing grants is those decisions are often behind closed, closed walls and you never really see like the reasoning behind it. And so right. um, as much as we can, we want to pass it on to the crowd and kind of let the funders and, and the community discuss that on the open. I see. Okay. Well, what, what do you do in terms of like ethical validity? Do you again let the funders assess? I mean, there are going to be some people who have ideas that, that just – um, don't necessarily pass the ethical sniff test. Um, are you going to say, okay, we're still going to post them and we'll let the, we'll let the public decide whether they should be funded or not? Um, are you talking about projects that are not, that are, that where ethics come into question, but there are projects that aren't Projects that have human subjects or other yeah. vertebrates. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't necessarily be human subjects, but um, the, for for instance, and and um, you know, I, I'm I'm having trouble thinking of an example, except um, having served on an IRB, and incidentally, something I'd be very interested to talk offline about you is that universal IRB or that that, that online type IRB. That, that is that's such a fascinating idea and, and so useful. Um, but a, a, a project that has a bias, um, you know, and uh, I don't want to get too political, but let's say a project that says, I want to prove that such and such race has a lower IQ than such and such race. And, um, you know, it is, it can be couched as valid science. You can say, okay, um, I have my methodology. I'm going to look at IQ tests. I'm going to measure, you know, like everyone did with the um, with the uh, eugenics, I'm going to measure head size. I'm going to do all those things, and uh, I need four hundred dollars to do all this. Um, do you have a um, a system where you would say, you know what, we really don't want to 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 do that, or do you say, okay, well, let's let the public decide? We haven't had a project submitted that's like that. The closest thing that I can think of that is like that are. Um, topics where um, things are controversial, for example, like gun control. Um, We don't support projects that have a specific agenda. So if you're saying you're trying to prove something, you're definitely going to get rejected by us or you're going to get a review back that says you need to present this as a research question with a hypothesis. And um, it could turn out that your data um, doesn't support your hypothesis and you have to be okay with that. Um, And so that's what we look for when we review. Okay, and that's and that's my answer. So, 
And that that incidentally, um, we're going to think about whether or not we'll edit that sec that section out. <laughs> I didn't mean to imply anything. It's just that anytime, I, I mean, believe it or not, one of the things that the uh, grant people do is they evaluate the ethics of the of the science. Um, there really is, you know, having sat on grant committees too. There really is some decision besides, oh, does this guy deserve the money? There's also the, um, does the, is this, A, is it valid, but B, is it um, uh, ethically sound? And it sounds like you you have the idea of that. I'm just not, uh, I don't know. I hope it never runs into it. But, um, you know, I'm always a little suspicious of what goes on on the Internet. So <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Yeah. No, actually, I okay. think that's a really good question, Keith. And I think you know, another way to look at it, too, would be, there are certain types of research, especially, you know, stem cell research that are okay in certain countries where they're not okay here, or not to say they're okay or not okay, but they wouldn't pass an institutional review board in the United States, but they might in another country. Um, and I should know the answer to this already, but is Experiment an international platform? I mean, can anybody around the world use it? And then how do you deal with those issues that it's not so clear cut? I mean, sometimes it would get the green light and... China, for example, but not in the United States. Uh, we accept donations from any credit card anywhere in the world. Um, right now, the platform is limited to the U.S., U.K., Canada, and Australia, mostly because those are the only countries that we can pay out to. Um, if there, there are researchers on the platform from other countries, but in order to get onto the experiment platform, they have to submit a questionnaire first. I see. Okay. So... Let's talk a little bit about grant money right now, the NIH and other, you know, nonprofit organizations. And Keith, you may actually want to answer, ask this question because we were talking about this right beforehand. But can, let's describe the landscape and some of the problems and, and particularly the, the overhead issue. But Keith, you want to? Yeah. Um, when I was sort of researching and I saw all the universities or the people that are associated with the universities, how are people able to get around bringing in, say, for instance, I'm looking at a, a grant here for $10,000 and the person um, is from uh, Harvard. So in theory, that Harvard researcher, that Harvard person is going to come in with $10,000. How do you get around the fact that no matter what money comes in, Harvard still is going to say, well, 75% for um, the overhead? Because they, they seem to do it uh, every time. Um, I was telling Colin offline, when I was first starting out in academic medicine, I applied for a seed grant and it was a piddling little grant. It was like, um, $10,000 just to get started, um, just to get some research data, which I could then maybe use for, uh, uh for the learning grants and the, and go into the NIH framework. And, um, the grant people sent back and said, um, we like it, but we can't pay indirect costs. And, and um, your Harvard is, and we probably ought to, your university is um, insisting on 75%. So we can't give you the money. So even a seed grant was of a tiny amount was being taxed, if you will, by the, the university. Have you addressed this with the university? As I see institutions listed on, on your, your um, uh, front page, is this something you've talked about the university to the universities with to get them to to say, okay, any money that comes in through experiment.com, we'll, we'll leave that aside? Or how have you addressed this issue? Go ahead. Um, yeah, so th this was a concern early on with some scientists, particularly if you're talking about larger amounts of funds. Um, but our policy has always been that uh, we ask universities to not take indirect costs. Mm -hmm. So when we actually pay out the funds to the researchers, we include that as a stipulation of accepting the funds. And then the way that also helps um, kind of getting around this is the way we process the funds. So instead of kind of treating it like a grant, most institutions also have a sort of like donor office or like a alumni fund. Um, so they have ways to take actual like cash donations. And so um, we basically just kind of direct the, the, the project funds. Um, towards a specific lab or towards a specific project, um, and that way it gets around. In most cases, uh, it, it doesn't necessarily, like, the administrators don't get too upset about it. Okay. Researchers so, also, yeah, go ahead. Uh, researchers also have the option to take the funds into a, their own personal account. So if the okay. university is being particularly hard to work with, then they can also take it into a personal account. Okay. 
Yeah, so it becomes so yeah, it becomes almost an earmark donation rather than a, a grant then. Exactly. Okay. So that's that's that solution. Um, have you found that the um, the universities are really receptive to this? I would think they would be because it brings more research things that wouldn't ordinarily occur um, to the their campuses. Uh, but have you actually discussed it with the uh, with the administrators? Yeah, so I think that was probably one of the biggest learnings early on of trying to figure out kind of the the growth bumps. Um, in that early on, a lot of universities uh, kind of approached crowdfunding as like, a, we don't know what it is, it's new, therefore we will avoid it. Um, and I think actually that sort of response was really common among the kind of top tier universities where research right. funding isn't as much of a problem. But then as soon as you get outside of that like 20 universities, the rest of the institutions uh, in America um, saw it as an opportunity to at least help their students. And I think right. those institutions that kind of saw it as a benefit and as a way to like help elevate these projects, but then also engage their audiences and their communities, um, that became very valuable. So right now we have a number of like kind of what you wouldn't think of as, you know, the top of mind research institutions, but they're actually funding a lot of really cool, interesting projects through Experiment this way. Great. They also have University of South Carolina that matches mm -hmm. every, I think, ah. up to $2,000 for any student or faculty member that wants to use Experiment. So good for them. That's it great. Is. Yeah. What, let's uh, take a different track for a moment here. So this is for most of the physicians listening right now. And in the U.S., still most physicians are in community county hospitals. Not all of them are in academic centers. But I guarantee you, almost every one of them has an idea to improve something or to do something different or something they want to explore. So if you're looking at you know, a physician who's at a county hospital but not affiliated with a university and they want to get on experiment because there's a question they have, a legitimate question, and they want to explore it, take us through the steps of how they get on board and what they're going to experience once they uh, post their project. Um, so the first step would be to define your main hypothesis and the budget, the amount that you need to test this hypothesis. Once you have that, you go to the experiment site and submit a proposal through experiment.com slash start. Uh, the proposal will ask you for a title, um, a photo that will showcase the project, um, an abstract, what is the context of the research, why is this research important? What are the goals of the project? Um, you'll show your budget with outlined budget items. Um, you'll show a timeline with milestones that you plan to reach, a biography, and then you submit that to the experiment platform. Within 48 hours, you'll hear back from the experiment team um, and we'll send you a document um, showing how you could potentially make your proposal more concise or more compelling. It's up to the researcher whether or not they want to edit that. Um, or you'll receive an email that says, like, your project is not eligible before, because of some reasons. If your project is accepted, then you have to request an endorsement from um, another colleague. Once you have that endorsement and you verify your identity, um, then you can launch on the platform. Most projects will run for 30 days. During those 30 days, if you uh, are successfully funded, your donors will be charged on the 31st day. If your project isn't successfully funded, none of your donors will be charged. Um, your donors are charged on the 31st day and it usually takes about a week for us to process all of the payments and send the funds to either your personal account or to your hospital account or university account. And then the project starts and then um, it's up to the researcher to post lab notes every time they reach a milestone and then eventually at the end of the project share a peer-reviewed paper, maybe a thesis, uh, or just a few short paragraphs about what they learned um, and discovered by executing the research project. So success is defined by if your project was successfully executed, not necessarily did you get significant data. Interesting. And so that they could have the best chance of becoming one of the 44% that become fully funded. I mean, what are the tips and tricks that you offer researchers when they're putting together this proposal? Can you answer that? Yeah, so a lot, of it, a lot of it comes down to preparing these researchers to do the outreach. So that is a really big part of how kind of crowdfunding and online communities 
works. And, and a lot of scientists um, doing this for the first time aren't really used to that, but then also maybe like have never really tried to participate in something like science Twitter. Um, or you know maybe they've never written a blog before or uh, aren't active on social media. So a lot of what we do is getting scientists to think about what is the message of my project? Um, in particular, like how would you convey why this research is important or why people should get involved? Um, so part of that is thinking about why what is the impact of this project um, in a short, concise way? Part of it is thinking about uh, why now? Like, why is this research question um, crucial to answer and tackle right now? And then also, why me? So why is this particular team, out of all the scientists in the world, uh, the best suited to uh, approach this hypothesis? Um, and so a lot of it is just helping scientists kind of build the framework for how to communicate the project and ultimately how to like communicate science in an effective way. Um, and then the more preparation you do in doing that, then the more likely it is that uh, running the campaign will just kind of be like sharing the content you've already thought about or reaching out to groups that you've already found. Um, and then kind of somewhere in the campaign, usually like a little bit of serendipity or a little bit of good luck will happen in terms of getting picked up by other outlets or maybe you find a community that it really resonates with. Um, and that's kind of the magic of what happens when you put your science out there. There's also a science behind crowdfunding. We know that for every 100 page views a project gets, they'll probably get one to two donations. So you can calculate how many page views you need to get to your page in order to get to a certain funding goal. Um, the conversion is on average one to two percent, but we've seen some traffic sources convert at say 15%. So if you bring 100 people to the page, 15 people will give. And um, so we recommend that the researchers post lab notes during the campaign of interesting content that's related to their project so that it can bring them more page views. And you're talking about communities out there. I mean, is Facebook, Twitter, are these things connected to experiments? Are there offline discussions about what's being proposed? Uh, are there ways for uh, backers to communicate with the researchers? Yeah, so a lot of these conversations do happen in these kind of niche communities. So particularly around like rare disease research, um, where say funding might be harder to come by, uh, it's really easy for one of these communities to kind of uh, get proactive about starting a project or reaching out to researchers or interacting with scientists to, to put some energy behind one of these projects. Um, and yeah, I, like since we've started, we've, I've witnessed just like Twitter for example, for scientists just exploded in terms of engagement and people supporting each other and collaborating. And even if it's just like on a, hey, I'm thinking about doing this project, what would people, what, what would you, what feedback could I get? Um, so we're definitely seeing more of that. Yeah, because that could be really useful. I mean, there may have been people who already explored the idea in a different way. And yeah, that, that kind of collaboration could be very difficult in the siloed environment that a lot of universities are in. I mean, that's, that right there is, is, really compelling. Um, yeah. So I was thinking, uh, turn that around a little bit. Um, are you finding that the, um, that the, um, online communities are a good way to find out which projects have the best buzz? I mean, let's say I want to go in and, and I want to find out for experiment.com. What's the hot project? What's everybody uh, talking about? Are you finding that people are actually doing that? That they're saying, did you see this project on experiment? Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess I was going to say that I don't think we've we've ever found like a formula for a, you know, here's what you need to do to guarantee a funded project because I think every message in every project is different. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't, like for example, right now biology and ecology are two categories that are um, where we have a lot of projects. And most of those projects uh, come from, you know, independent grad students or people doing field work. And we just... I feel like that is partially just because that was our background when we first started experiments. So maybe if we had been like physicians or computer science researchers, those those categories would be bigger on experiment. But um, yeah, I, I don't know if I can say that there's any way to like reliably create a buzz experiment. Okay. So right now where we stand, have you both tracked how many experiments uh, have resulted in peer-reviewed papers. Um, give us, you know, just some stats here about some of the successes that you've seen so far. Yeah, we just looked at that um, last December, and at least 65 peer-reviewed publications have come out of um, funded experiments. 
that doesn't include the other results like conferences or posters um, or talks. And we just launched a feature where the researchers can post all of their results in one section that will show up at the top of their project page if their project is finished. So if you see a project and it is finished, you'll see the peer-reviewed papers and any other results that they have. Very cool. And let's talk about peer review for a little bit here because there's been a lot of controversy about this, about um, especially medical journals, um, how they actually do peer review, if they even do it at all, um, charging uh, you know physicians and scientists to submit papers, and then obviously having paywalls for people to, to look through the research. A lot going on here, but is there a way right now for the community here at Experiment to be a, a form of peer review? And is there any interest in testing the results of experiments? Uh, are there people who propose projects just to do that? Take us through that a little bit here. Yeah, so that is a really cool thing that um, we've been seeing on Experiment and things that we've, we've tested a little bit in the past, which is uh, how can we deliver the scientific results in a meaningful way, but also maybe not in the traditional way that's like a peer-reviewed paywall journal article. Um, so we've actually had a few projects that have posted their results um, on Experiment, like a full kind of in-depth, like here's what we did, here were the methods, here was the data. Um, but in a really cool kind of like web first or like a, a, a like with data visualizations and it's interactive um, and really cool high quality photos and videos um, just as a way to kind of give something back to the funders as a way of like not only here's what came out of the project, but um, in a way that you can like really follow and understand and kind of feel ownership of. Um, and so that's something that I think we believe like more more of that is good for scientists and in our community and our funders um, because it gets people engaging with the the actual science content in a way that isn't like a, you know, you have to be a scientist to understand it. I think we're seeing a shift in um, giving the power of distribution over to scientists rather than to publishers. Um, what we're seeing is that there are more and more scientists publishing preprints before they publish their peer-reviewed article. And I, I think that in the future, what it's going to look like, it's going to be the researcher publishing their uh, research paper, peer review happening post-publication, and the reviewer comments being um, transparent to anyone and everyone that's looking at that document that's probably going to be an online document. Interesting. Yeah. The whole idea of experiment itself, I mean, obviously it costs money to run this. So give us an idea of your operation. Um, how much, is there a percentage that's taken from each funded project? Are there major backers of experiment? I mean, what's keeping the lights on right now? Uh, so currently we take 8% of uh, project funds only if the project is successfully funded. So it's a lot like other crowdfunding platforms where it's an all or nothing crowdfunding model. So if you launch a project and it doesn't meet its funding goal, then none of the backers are charged and there's no cost to you. Um, so that way it encourages researchers to at least try. Um, about three years ago, uh, after we went through Y Combinator, which is this kind of like startup accelerator for uh, like tech companies, um, we raised investment from a few angel investors and uh, venture capital firms, um, and that's kind of paid for our or helped support our growth up until now. And then uh, we're combining this with our revenue stream to continue growing experiment. So obviously those backers expect to get their investment back. I mean, this is a, an operation that pays for itself. It's not purely nonprofit, right? Yeah, uh, we are a mission-driven for-profit company, um, but we are a company that has a very long horizon. Um, so it isn't going to be like a company that you see IPO in like seven year years or 10 years. Um, that isn't something we're thinking about today. Yeah, our, our goal has always been first, how can we help scientists um, and re recognizing kind of that social mission first um, has we've always been clear with our own supporters, like the company's investors as well, that that's something that we we want to focus on. And I think we're also seeing that now with more and more web platforms starting to operate as like a small business or like a community driven business first, as opposed to, um, you know, trying to be a fast growing company that then 
sells or IPOs, and then that that value to those that community is lost. Um, we definitely right. believe people should be able to connect with scientists on a personal level. So therefore, this kind of platform has to exist. Right. Good point. So um, one of the things that we always grapple with in medicine, certainly, I'm sure in all sciences, what is the future of funding? Is this the future of funding? Are we going to see that that um, NIH-type funding and, and big grants sort of dry, dry up like they've been doing? Corporate funding is iffy because of the ethical question. Is this where we're really going to see the, the, the future of, of medical research, scientific research? I think experiment fills this gap that no, no one was really paying attention to before. And maybe these projects were being funded, say, like 30 years ago when NSF was still accepting a much higher percentage of proposals. Um, I think to, in today's funding environment, you have double or more than double the amount of talent submitting proposals to those agencies. And so those agencies just, they can only fund the proposals that are lower risk. So I think Experiment will play a role in funding these higher risk, smaller projects. Um, and what I would like to see is um, larger funding agencies like NIH or NSF be more transparent about where the funds are going and encourage the scientists to share their research process um, and their results more openly with the public. And maybe even getting a, a block grant from the NIH or the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that's distributed through your network. So the network and the community decide where that goes. I mean, is that something you've looked at? Definitely. I think that's one area that's exciting is thinking about these sources of funding as not necessarily mutually exclusive. Um, and that I think also scientists today, like that's part of the reality of being a, a productive, efficient scientist is also not putting all your eggs in one basket. So I think most scientists these days, you know, that just means applying for more grants, but also depending on what fields you're in, it could also mean partnering with other nonprofits and agencies, um, working with like smaller government groups, particularly in areas like conservation, ecology, and biology. Um, and so, yeah, we would absolutely love to maybe one day run like an NIH challenge grant on experiment where some of the funds are matched maybe by the crowd and also with uh, maybe more traditional funders. And for us, that's something that we found is we, we can really leverage whatever extra, you know, funds that NIH provides. Um, experiment can also bring maybe more awareness or a larger audience. Um, perhaps the stakeholders themselves can get involved with the projects. Um, that, that is all a possibility. Yeah. We ran a... Oh, go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say, which is why the, the USC model is so important, that if you have the institution backing it and supporting it and matching... That's going to help immeasurably. So go ahead. In 2016, we ran what we call um, challenge grants, where for a specific month, like say the month of January, we had a $1,000 uh, grant for anyone that was um, anyone that submitted a project related to marine mammal research. And we found that by putting up that $1,000, uh, we were able to fund, I think, I think we funded six or seven graduate students and one graduate student received the $1,000 grant because that's the grad student that had the most number of donors. Um, and so for every $1 that that grant provided, we were able to bring in $16 from the crowd. Wow. And so we ended up running over 30 challenge grants from topics like Zika virus, um, artificial intelligence, uh, like we had a trash and like pollution challenge grant. We ended up coming up with all these interesting topics that were uh, cool because they were interdisciplinary. So it was a way to attract different scientists to work on kind of the same topic or same challenge. Um, and it was also stuff that maybe would traditionally go underfunded or, or it would be hard to fund because it is uh, something like, I don't know, Zika virus was, was a cool one because we were able to attract scientists from around the world, not just in the U.S. Very cool. Well, uh, Denny and uh, Cindy, we're getting really close to the hour here, so want to be respectful of your time. Maybe we can just wrap things up here. If I can ask each of you to describe maybe one or two experiments that you've seen that you just thought just blew your mind. I mean, they really stood out and um, it doesn't have to be something that was that popular, but just something that really made an impact in each one of you. And Cindy, if you want to start out. Okay. Uh, there are these two faculty members here uh, in the CUNY system, the City University of New York. 
and they submitted, they've done two projects on experiment now, and their hypothesis is that a ketogenic diet can inhibit the growth of cancers. And they are inspired by this because there were a few terminally ill cancer patients that have blogs online. Um, and those patients had switched their diets over to a ketogenic diet and seen that their cancer um, had been improving. And so the two faculty members, I think one is in cell biology and another one is in some sort of medical field. Um, they decided that they were going to see if they could incubate cancer cells and um, have them survive off of ketones, I believe, and see if it would prevent the cancer cells from growing. And they raised $6,000 for the first project and then $80,000 for the second project. And almost all of their donors were people from the ketogenic diet community. And so that was one project where they could actually use the funds to hire a scientist full-time for one full year. Excellent. That's fantastic. Denny, what, what, what jumped out to you? Uh, there's a lot. <laughs> um, I like, uh, I particularly enjoy following all kinds of different research topics, but, um, let's see. One that was really cool was probably a while back was, um, three sisters. There were like middle school, high school, um, and there were three girls who were basically interested in launching this hydroponic garden into space um, because the idea is once humans are space traveling, we're going to have to figure out how to grow stuff in space. Um, and so they had developed this small garden that would spin, and it was basically kind of just a, a simple experiment to test how plants grow in a microgravity environment. And then they ended up partnering with um, what was the name of the Nanorax, which is like a cube satellite uh, service company, and then um, got a whole bunch of funders, and they had like donations of like patches from past space missions um, contributed to the project, and like a lot of cool stuff that they were doing, and they ended up um, getting funded and sending their thing into space on the International Space Station. That's um, amazing. And I think like one of the girls is now in college and is probably. <laughs> like sitting in her lectures light years ahead of everyone else. But it was really cool to, to watch that unfold and watch that happen because they were very proactive. Um, but they also kind of had that mentality that all young, uh, promising scientists have of like anything is possible and I'm just going to barrel ahead and do it. So that was cool to see. Oh, wow. I probably have 20 more questions, but we got to let you two go. So I've got to ask you, you know, since we, there's so much more to talk about and there's so much more you're doing, we'd love to have you both come back on maybe another year or so and catch up with you. Uh, and Keith, I just had a great time today. This is a lot of fun. And it's just, it's just fascinating. As I said, I wish this was around in the beginning of my career because, um, it would have made such a difference. It would have been really so much, um, easier to try to work, uh, with people who wanted to hear what I was saying instead of people who were just caught up in the institutional budget. So well done. And also I congratulate you on your website. It's fantastic. It's, it's just easy to use a lot of information. Um, I'm, um, I'm very excited about this whole project. So it's great. Cool. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. We support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at peerspectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at peerspectrum.com. <laughs>